Keith and I, well, we share, we share some friends. We went to mm -hmm. the same institution academically. Mm -hmm. Different name though. Yep. Yeah. It's Baptist Seminary when uh -huh. I went there, and they dropped the Baptist when you went. Don't hold or, that against me. I don't. Not at all. Not at all. And uh, your supervisor was my supervisor, Dave Turner. And, uh, and another mutual friend I saw in a picture. Well, Whitmer was my classmate. We graduated together. Can we say the name Joel Beakey? He was there too. So what, what I love, Keith, is, is not only fellowship in the gospel, but we resonate in a lot of other areas of doctrine and, and life and ministry. And I'm thankful to the Lord for you. I'd like to pray um, as you come bring the thank word. You. Okay. Well, Father in heaven, I thank you for bringing Keith and his family to us today. I thank you for bringing them into our life years ago. I thank you that Grace has been able to stay with them these years, and may we continue so and deeper and further in that relationship. I pray now your blessing upon Keith, Lord, as he brings the word to us. Father in heaven, fill him with your Holy Spirit. Give him wonderful recall of mind. Give him freedom in communication. Uh, may he stay rooted in the text and, and bring us there with him. And God, give him all the resources he needs today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. It's a great privilege to be able to open the Word this morning, and uh, I feel the weight of responsibility filling in for uh, you, Pastor Todd, and it's um, really a blessing to have friends like Todd, friends like the Kindies, friends like all of you, faithful, Bible-centered, God-centered. I'm just thrilled to be able to be here this morning. We're going to be looking at a passage from the book of Jonah, if you would like to open your Bibles there this morning. It's going to be um, a bit of a broader vision of the book of Jonah. We're going to draw some lessons from the book, so we'll be bouncing around a little bit in this uh, marvelous book. But I'd like to start out explaining a little bit of why I can resonate so deeply with who has become my friend, Jonah. I want to take you back to a time in my life when I was very conflicted. I was in a stage in my life where God was working on my heart. He was pushing through, but I was still very reluctant. I was very reluctant to what he was calling me to do. I remember the day I was in Switzerland at the time, and I had many, made a decision many years before this particular day that no matter where my life took me, no matter what happened in my life, there's one thing I would never, ever do. Can you guess what that was? I will never be a missionary. Never. I uh, was born and raised in Madrid, Spain, and I had seen what 
it means to be a missionary. I have, I have seen what it means to be a missionary in a difficult place like Madrid. I'd watched my parents serve faithfully with commitment. I'd seen them pour out their lives for the Spanish people. I'd seen them being able to plant a church, the church I grew up in, Coslava Baptist Church. And I watched them as they carried out all the activities of the missionary lifestyle. And the Spanish people were not very responsive. They weren't very nice, for that matter, sometimes. I remember one occasion where my parents wanted to invite some Spanish neighbors over and share a meal with them, and my mom cooked up her best meal, and the Spanish response was, ay, que asco, yuck. My poor mom. My dad is the nicest guy in the world. He'd give you the shirt off his back. People turned on him, betrayed him. And so, on this particular day of my life, I said, no way. And I'd been saying it for a while. But on this day, things were a little bit different. I was at the top of the mountains in Switzerland, studying hotel management, and God had been working on my heart. And that very day, I said, who in the world am I? to say no to God. Who do I think I am to resist him? The conflict was intense, and God was calling me to serve him, and I was not wanting to do that. And I want to make it clear, I'm talking about myself, not somebody else, my struggle, not somebody else's. And I say that because I can resonate with our friend Jonah, and I can also resonate with maybe what many of you have struggled with or are struggling with. And no one knows, right, how hard it is to relinquish our will to do God's will. So I can identify with this man that I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to take a look at Jonah, and I want to take a look specifically at his life as an example of a reluctant servant. A reluctant servant. A reluctant missionary. When God calls him to take the gospel to the people of Nineveh, he is not excited about that. But you see, what I love about this book is that that's not the end of the story. Because on a parallel track with the development of this reluctant serv servant, we see what? An eager God. A God who is eager for the salvation of the nation. And I hope that as we soak in that eagerness that we see in our great God, that we also will be infected positively with that desire. So that's the topic of my message this morning, reluctant servant and an eager God. And we're going to be drawing some missionary lessons from this book of Jonah. I just want to make three points this morning. Number one, Jonah's reluctance to take the gospel to the nations. Number two, God's eagerness, triumphing, overcoming the reluctant servant's reluctance. And then number three, we're going to look at the unexpected ending that the book of Jonah leaves us with. I just want to give us a quick reminder of the story of Jonah. 
Um, I'm imagining many of us have heard it, but if you remember, it's the story of this man named Jonah whom God calls to take the gospel to Nineveh. And if you have your Bible in front of you, you can just look over at verse 1, where Jonah 1.1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up against me. So what does Jonah do? He responds eagerly to the call to go. No, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of God. In the complete opposite direction. Some people say it's Spain. So there's a chord that, is, that strikes with me. So Jonah is a man on the run. Why? Well, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh represents everything that would make a good Christian shudder. Satanic, demonic worship mixed with sexual aberration, mixed with political corruption. You can go down the list, tick all the boxes, and that's what was there in Nineveh. A country, a civilization built on violence. So he runs the other way. In the next chapter of the story, what happens? There's a big storm. Uh, they're caught in the midst of these humongous waves. I was talking to a guy not too long ago in Italy, and he was telling me about how he was on a transatlantic cargo ship from Japan to Genova, and he was explaining how that huge ship on the waves was just like a little twig going down a drain. So what happens? Jonah finally allows himself to be thrown into the sea, and that calms the storm. The famous fish comes and swallows him up, and in the belly of the whale, he has a moment of clarity, but it's not quite the moment where he goes from being a reluctant missionary to an eager one. No, that doesn't happen yet, but he does seem to taste a little bit more of the compassion of God. Remember the, those words, out of the depths, I cried out, and the Lord heard my cry. Pretty intense experience, but it doesn't end the story for Jonah, but it do, does get him to respond differently to the call of God when it comes to him another time. Uh, the Lord says to him a second time in chapter 3, get up and go, and this time he goes. And what's the result? Incredible repentance on the part of the Ninevites. You think this would make him happy? No. He goes out and sits on the mountain, and what does God do? He brings a plant, and then God allows the plant to die, and then Jonah wants to die, and God uses his anger to teach him an important lesson. The book finishes with the words, should I not have mercy for such a great city? You're worried about this plant, and you think I'm wrong to be worried about this city of 120,000 ignorant Ninevites. So let's draw out our first lesson. Jonah is reluctant to take the gospel to the pagans, to these uh, pagan Ninevites, and we can identify with them, can we not? You know, I have a hunch that many of us have had that sense of reluctance, knowing God wants me to do this, but I just can't get there. But what I want to especially apply Jonah's reluctance to is one specific area of our 
lives, ministries, church lives that I think can speak to us. And I want to apply Jonah's example of reluctance, especially in this area. The sometimes showing up reluctance on our part to carry out a very clear call in the Bible, the call placed on the church, and each one of us to be involved with taking the gospel to the lost nations of the world. I immediately want to stop myself and make this parenthesis and remind myself and everyone here, I know the church that is before me, Grand Grace Bible Church. What a history of missions. We love missions. Stories that inspire us of people around the world encountering and embracing the gospel. We love to hear stories of Europeans in the dark countries of Italy, Spain, France, embracing the gospel, South America, Africa. But at the same time, there may be a little bit of reluctance in us as well, right? I'd like for us to just think about and bring to the surface some of these causes of our reluctance. Why? Why do we hold back sometimes? And maybe I'm not speaking corporately now. Maybe I'm speaking individually to some of us. What is it that causes us to feel this reluctance like Jonah? Well, maybe we've lost sight of the call. That could be so easy within all the responsibilities, all the things that the church is called to do, it's easy to lose one of those calls that we have. Could be. Again, I want to say, not with this church in our respect, <laughs> such a faithful partnership, but we need to constantly be reminding ourselves, do we not, of some of the last words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go out into all the nations make disciples. Maybe we've lost sight of the situation. That could be another cause of our reluctance. Maybe we've lost some clarity on the fact that lost people are truly lost and in danger of entering an eternity separated from God if they don't hear the gospel explicitly explain to them, and they consciously embrace it. Have we lost sight of the situation? Not too long ago, there was a conference, World Council of Churches, and in the midst of this group, one mainline denomination associate stood up, and he said these words. He said, in the past, we had the so-called motive to do missions of saving souls. We were convinced that if not made Christians, people in the masses would go to hell. Ah, we are enlightened though now. Now, thanks be to God, we believe that all people and all religions are already living in the grace and love of God and will be saved by God's mercy. Well, dear brothers and sisters, that is not the message of the New Testament. That is not the message of our Lord Jesus, and that is not the message of the apostles who went to their deaths in order to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus to their world. Sometimes we're reluctant because of the difficulty of the task, are we not? Sometimes we just are overwhelmed by the seemingly impossible task of bringing the gospel 
What can we do? The state of the world is so messed up. And I've had those days in Italy. If I'm honest, I still have them sometimes. When we were living in Rozzano, now we moved to another town, but we were in this city of 50,000 on the outskirts of Milan, and we lived in an apartment building with 15 other families. If you broaden the lens a little bit, there was a piazza with another uh, 15 of these buildings. In our total apartment complex, there were 700 families. We never ran into another believer in the gospel. And when we got to Italy, our cry was, Lord, give us Italy. After a few years, it became, Lord, give us Milan. Then it was, Lord, give me my stairwell. Lord, would you give me one? (laughs) And the Lord has. He's been faithful. But we know the feeling. We can be so overwhelmed with what seems like an insurmountable task. It's hard. We get discouraged. We know the call. We see the situation. But subtly, we can start to tell ourselves, it's never going to change. Nothing's ever going to happen differently. So very subtle. And I want to remind you, my dear friends, with God, all things are possible. (laughs) There's nothing that our God cannot do. We had this experience not too long ago when we were called by Maria. Maria was a family member of one of the members of our church. And uh, Maria was one of those dear people in her late uh, 60s, now she's in her 70s, that kind of orbited the evangelical church, orbited Veritas, and would come if there was some special activity. But when it came time to embracing the gospel, there was no way she was ever going to change religions. But Maria called us one day, and Debbie and I went over there, and uh, Maria was in a very deep spiritual crisis. Her, Her sister had told her that unless she prayed a prayer to Mary for her intercession, her daughter's child, which she was about to have, would be cursed. So we talked to Maria, and we quoted especially one verse, 1 John 5, perfect love casts out fear. And whoever has fear does not know love, does not know the love of God. Maria had never heard that message before. A God of love? A God who is not an ogre in the sky? A God who has demonstrated his love by sending his son on the cross. Her whole face changed. She became a believer, and now she is an active participant in Veritas Church. So maybe it's the difficulty. Maybe it's this next one that hits a little bit close to home for me, but is a reality. Old-fashioned hard hearts. Old-fashioned hard hearts. This one is quite convicting for me. I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like to face the fact that my greatest battle is with my own heart. I pray like this. I say, God, I want to be moved by what moves you. I want to want what you want. I want to win more people over to worship you and recognize your worth. But sometimes my heart... It's so hard. Maybe you can identify with me in this. There's a man who recounts a very personal 
way in which he saw this come up in his life. He's uh, influenced many people. If I said his name, you might know him, but this man talks about what happened at one point of his life. He was driving to church one day. He was a pastor, and he saw some young people treating an elderly lady poorly. He went over to them, started to berate them, chastise them, and then in a way that surprised even himself, he said, I expect you to be in church next Sunday. He didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. But they showed up next Sunday at church. And he was now in church with these young people, and it struck him at that moment. He said, I didn't have anything to offer them. I had a lot of preoccupation with ministry, with myself, with my family, finances. But he says this, there was no overflow of joy. There was no overflow of life. Somehow, throughout his life, he had been disconnected from this vital relationship with the Heavenly Father that used to be such a joyous relationship, but had become something different. It's really convicting to me. I want to cultivate a soft heart. I want to cultivate an openness to God to minister to me. Maybe what you're thinking is what I think when I think about some of these things where I don't hit the mark. I say, great, another thing to add to my to-do list. And you get that sinking feeling. million things that I need to be doing as a missionary and as a pastor. I need to be evangelizing the lost and I need to be counseling church people. I need to be fully immersed in ministry and I need to take care of my family. And it sometimes can feel like we can't do it. But you see, I've come to realize that this way of thinking says a lot about how I've gotten confused in my thinking. Because every aspect of our Christian lives, every aspect of our Christian walk is to be done not alone, but with the help of a Heavenly Father who makes all of His resources at our disposition. That changes everything. <laughs> and so, I can say, Lord, help me. Help me with this. Help me to have a heart that beats for what your heart beats. So that's the reluctance that we see. The second point that I'd like to bring out is God's eagerness to save the city of Nineveh. As we said, we see in Jonah this reluctance. Maybe some of these were in his heart when he went the opposite way from his duty. But isn't it wonderful to see that that is not the end of the story? Because throughout the story of Jonah, you see a God whose purposes will not be thwarted by even the most reluctant of missionaries. Twice in the story, we read about the God of Israel having a strong desire to bring the message to Nineveh, verse 2 of chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come against me, come up before me. Chapter 3, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, the message that I tell you. Sending his messenger to go. And now maybe you're thinking, hmm, those verses don't seem to show a God that has a strong desire. <laughs> to bring the gospel, the message of salvation to Nineveh. But I'd like to propose to you that 
You cannot separate the message of judgment from the message of salvation. We need to understand that God's warning of judgment is inseparable from his offering of salvation. The way I kind of think of it is when we think of God and the warnings and the judgment, it's kind of like when you go to the doctor and you have a sickness. What does it reveal in the doctor if you being sick, he just pats you on the shoulder and says, oh, just continue to live your life as you're living it. Would that be compassionate and loving? No. It would be an evil thing. And so you see, when God sends forth the message of judgment of what will happen to his creatures if they continue in a path of rebellion and unbelief, if they continue in their folly, they will reap the just results of what they've sown. But the message never stops there, does it? The message of judgment is accompanied by an offer of salvation. He doesn't just say, if you continue, you will perish and then leave you. He says, you're on the road to perdition, but I have sent my son to save you from your sins. He says, receive him as the payment for sin. Receive him as the one who takes away your sins and wipes them away. What a wonderful message of judgment and of salvation. You see, it's precisely in this message of judgment that he demonstrates his availability, his interest in warning and then saving. If only the recipients of the message will repent of their unbelief. It's a great mercy when God sends his servants to a people with the message of warning. And God does that and we see in that sending of his messengers, his eagerness to send a saving message and his readiness to overcome even the obstacles in the reluctant servant's heart. And you know what that leaves me with? And if you don't remember anything else of what I've said this morning, I hope that when you leave this place, what I just said will leave you with a great sense of hope. Because in this story, the main character is God himself. God is the one who is at work. God is the one who is, has his sights on the lost and who has his sights on overcoming even obstacles that arise in these reluctant servants. And even in spite of our failures and in spite of our reluctance and in spite of our not being always up to standard, <laughs> God is not limited. God has not stopped. So whatever you're going through in your life right now, take hope, take courage. Because you see, we have this idea many times that God is an ogre in the sky. If we don't traffic with him in the market of good works, then, well, he can't wait to take the rug out from under us. But I would propose to you that if the only thing that could turn God's attitude against a sinner is sin, and that has been taken away once and for all, if we are walking in faith and repentance, everything in our lives is under the hands of a sovereign, good God. That gives me such great hope. We're about to take some big steps of faith in our ministry there at Veritas, and it can be intimidating sometimes. <laughs> Great obstacles, great goals, 
leadership training. And if I didn't have that firm belief that God, as I walk with him in faith, trusting in a good father, repenting of my tendency to turn away and to become independent from him and to want to do things on my own, and I turn and I receive, I can be assured because of the cross that he is on the move. Take heart. I'd like to conclude with the last point, an unexpected ending. If you will go with me towards the end of the book, I uh, mentioned it before, but we see in chapter 4, after the dust settles and Jonah has his experience with the plant, the interesting, surprising end of the story. You remember how it ends. It ends with Jonah pouting after his plant has been eaten by a worm. The plant has been appointed by God to make shade over his head. Then we read about the worm, and God uses this to say in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then the words, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. That's how it ends. I don't know about you, but it leaves me with a sense of inconclusiveness. (laughs) Really? That's it? What happened next? Did uh, Jonah feel his conscience pricked and go back to Nineveh? Did he see things God's way and say, it's true, Lord, how could I have been so little compassionate for these thousands? I'd like to propose you the following reason for which this book ends the way it does. The reason this book doesn't have an ending, (laughs) brothers and sisters, is because the story is still being written. The story is still being written. The question that the author wants to leave us with is not so much a perfect resolution of what Jonah did. The question is, will we return to Nineveh? Will we have eyes for the more than 120,000, many more, lost pagans that are deeply immersed in ignorance? That's what the phrase, don't know their right hand from their left, is getting at. Ignorance. So when we think of the lost people of this world, yes, we know they're in rebellion. We know they're voluntarily rebelling against their creator. But there is also ignorance. They don't know. They don't know just how holy this God really is. They don't know how infinitely, deeply sinful we are as sinners. And they don't know how majestic and glorious the cross of Jesus Christ is to wipe away every sin. Will we go? Will we see the people that many times we are tempted to feel bitterness towards, anger for various reasons, and follow our God's example 
will I not have compassion? So, dear friends, may we accept this challenge of taking the gospel to a lost and dying world. But I don't want just the challenge to be on our shoulders. I want the confidence to be on our shoulders that God is with us. God is our partner in what He wants to do in bringing the gospel to a lost and dying world. And then, as we are equipped with His power to transform lives and to deliver the life-giving gospel, may we go out of these doors ready to fulfill our call. Heavenly Father, You are our Heavenly Father. We tend to forget that. I tend to forget that. I tend to imagine a different kind of God so many times. But Lord, you have revealed yourself as a God who delights in showing mercy. A God who delights in having compassion on lost sinners. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do, that perfect balance of inspiring us, challenging us, but never causing us to feel overburdened, always telling us as you challenge us, as you encourage us to move out, saying all my resources, all the resources of the living God are available to you, my dear children, to extend the gospel to bring the life-saving message to a lost and dying world. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us and help us to deepen our understanding of your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.